This is episode 263 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show and get access to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Chris Hiley. I'm a professor of English at The Ohio State University. And another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. These people were Eastern Europeans, Central Europeans. They were not um, anything to do with Africa or black or skin color. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. During the 16th century in Europe, the Portuguese dominated the African slave trade. European ships were first exposed to African slaves when privateering vessels would find enslaved Africans packed alongside Atlantic trade goods in the hulls of captured ships. The Spanish were the first to try and break up the Portuguese monopoly on slaves, establishing a system known as the Asiento de Negros in the 16th century. That was a little more Italian than Spanish, but you follow me and the spelling is in the show notes. It was an agreement between the Spanish crown and the private person or granting a monopoly in supplying African slaves for the Spanish colonies in the Americas. The Dutch would use similar contracts to compete in this market, and it wasn't long before the British and French followed suit. We see glimpses of this history show up in Shakespeare's plays when he mentions the word slave an astonishing 170 times. The word Negro specifically is used in his play Merchant of Venice, and Shakespeare refers to, quote, an African in the play The Tempest. Here today to help us understand the start of the Atlantic slave trade and the place of Africans, black-skinned people, and even white-skinned slaves for Shakespeare's England is our guest and author of Transformations of Slavery, A History of Slavery in Africa, Paul Lovejoy. Paul Lovejoy is Distinguished Research Professor Emeritus for the Department of History at York University and Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He was the founding director of the Harriet Tubman Institute for Research on Africa and its diasporas at York University. He is a past member of the UNESCO's Slave Route Project, Resistance, Liberty, and Heritage, with which he continues to be associated. Most recently, he was awarded a grant from the Transatlantic Platform for Social Innovation on Documenting Africans in Transatlantic Slavery. There's a website available to that, along with links to Paul's work and more information on his publications on the Atlantic slave trade in today's show notes. Hello, Paul. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Well, thank you. How long had the slave market been in place in Africa before Europeans became involved? Well, Europeans were involved in slave markets before Africans became a primary source of enslavement. The term slave actually derives from Slav, which is Eastern European and nothing to do with Africa or black people. In fact, uh, slavery itself uh, in the European 
in Western Europe goes back to Roman times uh, and Greek times. Uh, so the, the slavery is ex extremely old and the trade in slaves in the European continent uh, extremely old. The more important question to ask is when did the slave trade in Western Europe dry up, except on the Mediterranean coast? Why was there no enslaved population in England or France or Germany in the medieval period? But slavery was known and condoned. In colonies, slavery became the cornerstone of economic exploitation and windfall, profits that arose from provision of untitled land at minimum cost because it was just occupied, and a labor force that could be coerced into working under adverse conditions, even dangerous conditions. Even before Portuguese and then English, French, Dutch, and even Corland, Denmark, and finally ports of the Americas, uh, especially Rio de Janeiro and Havana, stretching from New England, especially, especially Rhode Island, south to Rio de la Plata, all of this became involved in the slave trade. So it, it mushroomed. It doesn't appear to have been in Europe in Elizabethan times as uh, within Europe as an important institution, but it wasn't entirely, entirely disappeared. What was the political or economic incentive for England to be involved in the slave market during Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, the focus really wasn't on uh, the slave market at all uh, during that period. The focus was on stealing gold and silver. It was not on enslavement, but it was making money. That was the aim. And these were officially, you know, the people that operated on, during Elizabethan times who were called privateers. Uh, they were officially sanctioned thieves. They were pirates. It was like uh, Queen Elizabeth had a, her own personal military that was beyond the the realm of the state itself. And the instructions were simple. Go out, steal money, destroy property, kill people, co-op partners in crime, such as the Cimarrons in, Camp, in Panama. Uh, it was all organized gangster activity with royal sanction. But the, remember the context. The, the following century... That's a century later, and the legalized involvement in the slave trade was sanctioned through royal charter and formation of companies or conglomerates, the first being the Company of the Royal Adventurers and then the Royal Africa Company. So there's a transition from being a, an illegal act of piracy and, and stealing uh, to the formation of companies in a modern sense. So there's a long, but there's a long transition of slave trading and slavery that emanates from England that can be traced back to Elizabethan times. But there were important changes from her day when robbing ships of cargoes, which often involved loss of life, had strong similarities to the enslavement of people and forcing them to cross the Atlantic. Group power, reckless confrontation, disregard for the safety or well-being of the enslaved, except to the extent this, this uh, sale price might be affected. These were the issues. So it wasn't really initially an involvement in the slave trade. It was initially involved involvement in a straight-out uh, theft, with the target being uh, Spain, of course, and in Spain's access to gold and silver in the Americas, 
and the, the relative ease of waylaying one or two of the ships that had a lot of money on them and, and just stealing it and taking it back to England. So when we look at people like Francis Drake or John Hawkins, who were some of these privateers you're talking about, were they commissioned by Elizabeth I to collect and return slaves to England, or was that a byproduct of what they were sent to do? That was definitely a byproduct. They were commissioned to go out and bring back gold and silver and to intercept um, the Spanish galleons that crossed the, the ocean in large fleets trying to protect themselves from privateers and pirates uh, like uh, Drake and Hawkins and others. Queen Elizabeth deliberately, consciously recruited, uh, paid, and honored the Drake and Hawkins. Unofficially, it was not done through the government, and so that she could always, you know, lie internationally and say, no, she had nothing to do with this. This was not the British, this was not the English government. It was not her, um, you know, her orders. She could say all those types of things, which is exactly what she did do. So their purpose was to return with gold and silver, not slaves. But the enslaved captives had a value. And who were the enslaved? Well, those Spanish ships very often had slaves on board, too. And so when the ships were intercepted, the slaves were, were commandeered as well as the gold and the silver and everything else that was on board. But to isolate slaves as, as a target is a, a bit of a distortion. The real target was coin that could be minted. That's what fueled economic expansion, as well as allowing extravagant expenditures on public works, villas, churches, and even educational institutions in England. So if you go down the list of uh, Drake's exploits or Hawkins' exploits or even Hakalot's exploits, what you're seeing is the the beginnings of the establishment of a, of a British Navy. But that British Navy doesn't really come into existence until 50, 100 years after Queen Elizabeth and, and her reign. So... In effect, what you're seeing is that Francis Drake and and Hawkins, they're operating two generations be, before Britain, uh, England, and then Britain uh, become interested in establishing colonies to produce sugarcane and to establish plantations in the Americas. And that happened first on Barbados in the middle of the uh, of the 17th century. You see, that's that's 50 years after after uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign. And, and that is only 50 years after she, uh, her reign that we see really the first British Caribbean colony that develops agriculturally. And it's using, to a very great extent, indentured labor, mainly Irish, but also enslaved Africans, mostly from West Africa, uh, especially from the Bight of Benin and the Gold Coast and Senegambia. So two generations earlier, there was no thought of English emigration, and the earliest population movements were not to the Caribbean, other than Barbados, but to North America, remembering the size. It's really important in, in understanding this, because you have to remember that the size of England and Wales together at the end of the, the 16th century in Elizabethan times was only three to four million people. So that 
whoever leaves, it has to be really a very small number of people relative to the whole population. So, yes, so Drake and Hawkins and other privateers were sanctioned by Queen Elizabeth to carry out deportation against foreign shipping, especially Spanish and Portuguese. And it was it was an undeclared war that existed between the Habsburg monarchy and Tudor England. And you have to remember that Iberian control in the Americas and in West Africa was virtually a monopoly. And it was the English and the French and the Dutch that began to insert themselves into this trade, first through piracy and then through uh, occupation of, of land itself. So that during the period of Drake and Hawkins and, and of that generation, there's not a particular interest in slaves. But very soon thereafter, there is a very significant shift and there becomes an interest in slaves for producing goods in the Americas, uh, which would then fuel British and indeed French and other pros- prosperities in, in Europe itself. Now, you mentioned groups like the Cimarrones were co-opted, and they this group was escaped Spanish slaves, and they sided with Drake fighting against the Spanish in Panama. Now, Paul, I don't understand why the Cimarrones would want to have worked with Drake if Drake was taking people like them back to Europe as slaves. Why, why were they interested in wanting to be a part of his group? Well, he he wasn't really taking people like them back. He was only taking people that were on Spanish ships. And he formed an alliance with the Cimarrones at Nombre de Dios, which was with a port on the Caribbean side of the Panama, of the Isthmus of Panama, in which the caravans uh, coming from Peru, uh, bringing uh, gold and silver, and from the Pacific side of what's now uh, Colombia, what he what he did is he he formed an alliance with the Cimarrones of this town to intercept and in effect steal one of the big caravans. Uh, that's what it wasn't. Uh, the Cimarrones had no particular interest in the Spanish in protecting the route at this time, and they had to be bought off, which and they were by the Spanish government because of ultimately. They were granted the status of a town with a cathedral. Everybody in the town was uh, declared to be free. Once they established themselves as a free town within the Spanish Empire, they had no no interest in anybody like Drake anymore. And Nombre de Dios then was subsequently superseded as a as the port on the Caribbean by a place called Porto Bello, and which is not very far away. And for the same reason is that ultimately you had had to carry stuff across the isthmus because there was no canal, and so therefore you went to the to the ports that were connected with the best routes that crossed the the isthmus, not where the canal goes today, which goes to Cologne, because that's a different type of transportation, of course. Shakespeare uses the word Negro in his play Merchant of Venice. Explain that term for us in context of the late 16th century when this play was written. Was that a term that was applied generically to anyone with dark skin, or did it refer specifically to slaves? The the time of the play was written is is very important. Influential people close to Queen Elizabeth 
had as servants Africans in England, especially in London. But overall, there were not very many people from Africa uh, in England at this time. There were really only the ones that were brought in by the privateers that had been taken off of Spanish ships. And it's really also extremely important to remember that in 1596-98, when Merchant of Venice is written, the size of the population is approaching like 4 million people. About uh, 200,000 people live in London, which for its period is a substantial city, a major city, but still it's 200,000. And if you can, if we think about it from today's perspective, these are not uh, huge numbers of people. Here's the context. The relatively few number of in that 200,000 people that live in London, we're only probably talking about hundreds of people who are actually from Africa. A, a disproportionate number of those, however, would have ended up in quite visible positions, either as servants and households or working with merchants in the streets and, and, and things like this. It wouldn't have been unusual for someone to see or come in contact with somebody who was from Africa, but it was a really a very tiny, tiny percentage of the population. The use of the term, he, it isn't the only term that he uses. Shakespeare uses all kinds of terms, more, blackamore, and there are other terms that were used at the time, Libyans, and indeed Africans, and indeed Ethiopians. All of these terms were synonymous and used at the time. And in, certainly in my reading, both Merchant of Venice or Othello or, or, or other Shakespearean plays, I don't get a sense that there's a racist or a, a racialized uh, dimension to the way he's using these terms. Shakespeare, as we all know, is is very often considered the, the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, English author. And one of the reasons that he is is because of his ability to play with words, his use of words, his use of vocabulary, his ability to characterize. And I think that all of his terminologies around Africans uh, are like his terminology around Jews, around their characters, their their characterization. Remember, it was at a time when on stage you couldn't. There were no women. The men had to dress as women. You know, there were no blacks. There were there were no Jews. There were all of these were exaggerated costuming that helped to reinforce his uh, Shakespeare's play with characterization. And I think in using these terms, he's doing nothing more than that bringing to attention and playing with with because sometimes these are comedies and sometimes they're tragedies it's quite easy to shift from one to the other by the way that uh, shakespeare actually develops you know his presentations so i think it has much more to do with and this really does lead into other issues about other terms i think that in the context of the times it was a reflection of his ability to play with language and to use language to, to great effect.
Now, you mentioned that they were knowledgeable about Africans, which makes me want to ask whether or not some of the slaves being brought back from Africa were white slaves, because hardly all Africans are are black. There are lots of skin colors in Africa. So were there ever any white slaves that were also considered Africans? White and black are um, strange terms, because if you think about it, when did people in North Africa uh, when was it decided that they weren't others and that they were white rather than brownish color, as indeed is very prominent all around all sides of the Mediterranean? Because over the millennium, the intermixture of populations has been enormous in this in this great area. And the term Slav, as I said earlier, was these people were Eastern Europeans, Central Europeans. They were not um, anything to do with Africa or black or skin color. So the skin color, it's really even hard to, to imagine. When, when did Jews become white? When did Irish become white? In the 18th century, in, in the documents on the, in the Caribbean, you often find comments such as, and, you know, referring to Irish and other blacks as as if Irish and blacks are equivalent in some sense that goes beyond skin color, but has implications of skin color. So all of these terms are, are ones that have to be taken apart and looked at in context. There definitely would have been the people who spoke Arabic and who were Muslims who were enslaved in the Mediterranean all during this period. It was very common. It was being done by both sides. Uh, Muslims were enslaving uh, Christians and holding them for ransom in North Africa. Christians were enslaving Muslims and holding them for ransom in Italy and in uh, southern France and in Spain. And this this was going on. Uh, it had nothing to do with skin color. It had to do with religion. Uh, Arabs and as Muslims and Europeans as Christians. So this is going on exactly at the same time, but it disappears in England after the Crusades. It's a false kind of thing. Were, were there people who were light-skinned in Europe? who were slaves. Yes, there were, because they were Muslims. That's where the term Moor comes in, because Moors are black, and so therefore that's why it's black a Moor. A Moor is a Muslim, but he's a Muslim from the Sahara. And so that you, you do see a recognition of skin color being used with reference to people who are enslaved. At least when we see it in Shakespeare, it seems to be more of just an acknowledgement as opposed to something prejudicial. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to his um, his genius of characterization. I mean, he uses these things to establish character. Well, I know we would love to explore more about the history of the Atlantic slave trade, certainly in, under Elizabeth and then later under James, and how that played into the history of the establishment of the American colonies and how all of that's interwoven together, which, of course, is an overwhelming topic with lots to explore. So where would you suggest we start? What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to begin with when we want to explore this topic further? 
Well, I think a very good book to to really start with is a, a book by Toby Green, uh, who's a professor at King's College in London. His book, A Fistful of Shells, West Africa from the Rise of the Slave Trade to the Age of Revolution. Uh, I think it's really important that if we really want to know the context for Elizabethan times, that we actually know the context in the same period of what's going on in Africa. And uh, Green's book is a great overview that and demonstrates the the interaction between Portugal initially, but then other other European countries uh, right down into the into the 17th century, and provides a good overview of so that we don't have just a a one sided view of what's happening. And he shows that it's really that it's West. This has been known for, by specialists for a long time, but I think it's something that really needs to be known more generally. That West African gold fueled the the economies of Europe and the Islamic world for nearly a, a thousand years, and until and really until the, the the resources of the Americas became available, and it was during this period there was a period of sophisticated kingdoms that that spanned the whole west coast of uh, Africa and, and were trading with Europeans since the 15th century. So that the Elizabethan period is is a new stage in that uh, long history, in which um, English privateers insert themselves uh, through violence into into what is an, an Atlantic wide war for control of, um, of of the seas. That's one that I would recommend for anybody who wants to follow up on this on this topic. Paul has published extensively on this topic himself from several angles. So in addition to this resource he's recommending for you today, I'll place links to Paul's articles and publications. So you'll have a substantial resource for where to begin if you want to explore the history of the Atlantic slave trade further. Hang on at the end for the show notes URL for where to find those. Now, Paul, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, my most favorite book, if I were on an island, and I would I would love to reread it, is a book by Natalie Zeman Davis called Trickster Travels. It's an engrossing study of Leo Africanus. Leo Africanus's famous uh, book before Elizabethan time. And he was known in Europe as Leo Africanus, although his, his Muslim name was Al-Hassan Al-Wazan. And he was born in Granada to a Muslim family in, in 1492 and went to Morocco, where he act from, from where he traveled extensively on behalf of the Sultan of Fez. Uh, and he's known to historians as Leo Africanus, author of the first geography of Africa to be published in Europe, which was published in Europe in 1550, uh, just before Elizabethan time. He had been captured by Christian pirates in the Mediterranean and imprisoned by the Pope and then released. And he was baptized and allowed to, to uh, a European life of scholarship uh, and marriage as a Christian writer and known as Giovanni Leone. What makes the book so wonderful is, first of all, Natalie Zeman Davis 
and those Arabic, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Latin. Um, my Lord, she's amazing. And uh, therefore, the documentation and the research that she did into the life of this guy who crosses cultures is just simply astonishing. That in and of itself is such a, an amazing piece of historical research. But Davis does more than that because she develops a, what uh, historians know as, know as historical imagination. She often comes to the conclusion that things happened, even though she doesn't have direct proof that, to establish that they did. On the basis of logic, on the basis of coincidence, and so on. And so somehow her great skill is that she crosses from Islamic and Arab traditions, knowing Arabic, to Latin, and Al-Hassan al-Wazan became a special advisor to the Pope during a crucial period of history. And all of that interaction is, is explored by Davis in a most imaginative and wonderful way. That sounds like a fascinating book that I would love to read. We'll place a link to Paul's Desert Island book so you can check that out as well. Paul, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I've just completed a biography of an an interesting Muslim from West Africa who was enslaved in 1845 and taken to Brazil, where he was initially a slave to a baker in Pernambuco and then a ship captain from Rio Grande do Sul. He escaped from slavery because his master took him to New York City on his ship that was carrying a consignment of coffee. Uh, and in New York City, he escaped from slavery and via the Underground Railroad was taken to Boston and then Haiti, where he converted to Christianity. And, and from there, went back to the United States to become one of the earliest Africans to attend a college and write his autobiography. His, his name was Mohammed Gardo Bakwakwa. And, and now I'm turning my attention to another biography. In this case, the better known person, uh, usually referred to as Walada Equiano, although in real life his name was Gustavus Vasa. I already have a website on this project called Equiano's World, which is full of information and documentation on his life and times. And it, it's, it, its URL is very easy. It's just www.equianosworld.org. His life is fascinating because he came from a small village in the interior of the Bight of Biafra in what's now Nigeria, and then went to the Americas via Barbados and Virginia before becoming the enslaved man, a manservant for a British naval officer during the Seven Years' War. And subsequently, he became a businessman who owned a number uh, of ships involved in the inter-Caribbean and North American trade, including transference of enslaved individuals. Vasa used his skills to purchase his own freedom. Actually, he purchased it twice because the first time the money was stolen. And he went on to become, of course, an outspoken and influential abolitionist in the campaign to end the slave trade. Now, both of these projects, the one on Bacuacua and the one on Vasa Equiano, are part of my larger interest in recovering stories and biographies of as many individuals as possible. The stories that are being recovered often show achievements of freedom and the agency of individuals in shaping the conditions of survival under slavery. 
a team of researchers are engaged in documenting individual life histories as a means of, of highlighting the dignity and personalities of individuals who for a period of their lives were enslaved. Slavery was a portion of the lives of those who were born in Africa. While slavery impressed a stigma upon a person and pertained to a specific period of suffering, slavery still did not define the individual, you know, represent how they saw themselves. And that's what makes me interested in biographical research. If you're like me and you're excited to explore Paul's work, including Equiano's world, but maybe you aren't sure right off how to spell Equiano's and type that into your phone or tablet, fear not. I will place direct links on the website so you can explore his work in the show notes for today's episode. So visit there to find those. Paul Lovejoy, thank you so much for being here today and sharing with us from your extensive research and knowledge into the history of slavery and how it fits into the life of William Shakespeare. We have learned a ton of information today. Thank you for being here. Then, well, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a review on the platform you're listening from today. Every rating and review helps more listeners enjoy more Shakespeare history. Now, if you'd like to see some visual content and some archival information, museum exhibits, and other special tidbits that go along with the history you're learning about today, then please check out the show notes. We have direct links to all of the resources we talked about in today's conversation, along with some special extras. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 263. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP263. If you enjoy diving into the past and exploring the inside of the 16th and 17th century the way Shakespeare would have lived it, then you will enjoy joining us on Patreon. Not only can you unlock an entire back catalog of over 150 of our episodes that are not available on public listening platforms, but there's also special extras like a video library with documentaries all about spices of life from Shakespeare's life, three-minute animated plays, and there's a whole library of classroom resources, including activity kits and recipes games, printables, worksheets, lesson plans, stuff you can use to take your podcast into your classroom. If this sounds like fun and you'd like to explore more, then join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.